Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. So what we're going to do is jump into week three of our Holy Hospitality sermon series. We're going to jump right in there. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking about how to receive others. And then what does it mean to grow up in our faith and grow in maturity? And so uh, I have a little warning uh, not, not like crazy serious, but enough that I wanted to mention. I'm going to be talking about death and loss a little bit. Maybe the first five, six, seven minutes, uh, we're going to glance off something that if you've experienced that recently or you're grieving something that's pretty recent, um, it may be maybe too much for you. I, um, I can't know that in advance, but I wanted to say it just in case so you didn't get there and be like, maybe you should have warned me because this has re-triggered me into something I didn't want to be in. So we're going to talk about death and loss in a few minutes, and now you're aware. So if you need to step out now and go refresh or pretend to refresh coffee, you're good to do that. Um, no worries for me. That said, Matthew 14, we're going to jump straight into the scripture and go from there. It says, at that time, uh, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. This is why miraculous powers are at work in him. And now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted. And he had, be he had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came, took his body, and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. We start with the story of the death of John the Baptist, which we may be familiar with, but we sort of glance over at times. We kind of just jump into the next thing. It's the way Scripture feels to us sometimes. It's, we're just reading through stuff. This is the cousin, uh, close relative of Jesus, forerunner of the Messiah. He's the one announcing Jesus to the world. This is an utterly awful story. So when it says they went to tell Jesus, Matthew 14, verse 13 says this. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. We have to take stock what's happening here to really get a picture of, of what's happening within Jesus here to know where we're going today. It's easy to breeze by it. This is the one, John the Baptist, who baptized Jesus. The one that was chosen to present him to the world like, like Jesus' hand-picked opening act, who's also something like a brother to him. And he didn't just die. He dies a violent and unjust death. John was beheaded as a party trick by the royals. Gruesome. And if you stop and walk back through the story, and I'm not going to make you do that, but if you went back in Matthew 14 this week and you, you went back through the story and you just had to think through what mechanically has to happen for someone to dance at the party, please the king, and he goes, behead this man, and then within the same party, the head shows up on a platter. 
Jesus' response is that he gets in the boat and goes to be by himself, which I think is a pretty natural response we would all have. Um, You get awful news, terrifying news, gruesome news, deep grief hits. I need to be by myself for a minute. Confusion and anger, bargaining and doubting, pure heartbreak for Jesus. This is when we see the, the humanity of Jesus in, in some of its purest form. Often we, we sing of Jesus and we pray to Jesus and we know that Jesus is resurrected. We know that Jesus is God. And, and this, this God Jesus sometimes causes us to forget that the, the miracle that Jesus came fully human as well. That he was with us, among us, hurt like us. To sit with a loved one as they breathe their last is a profound experience. To be in the room as as people say goodbye is a profound experience. To whisper final loves, to watch a chest slowly stop rising and falling, it sounds like this. Everything stops. That experience never leaves you if you've had it. And that's actually the best case scenario when you experience that sort of loss. You get resolution. You get a final moment. How much harder as it has been for so many of you to hear of your greatest losses as a shock, like breaking news to the system to simply be left with the loss and to be told that it had happened and not have the moment to have the final words, to to have the final whispers, to have the final loves. This is where Jesus finds himself. Jesus doesn't get to hold the hand of his friend. Jesus doesn't get to be by the bedside. Jesus is told the most awful, gruesome, terroristic way this person you love is no longer. Jesus is shocked by the, the wild injustice. He's shocked by the loss that he can see. Jesus is disconsolate, right? He, you can see him stumbling off to the boat in a sense. You can see him as he gets the news, taking deep breaths and shaking a moment and going, I, I think I need some air. And the crowds have been gathering and Jesus has been doing his work and Jesus, Jesus, Fully God, fully man, Jesus says, I need some space. So it says he went to a solitary place. We pick up the second half of verse 13 and see what the people did with this. It says, hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed, he gets in the boat to a solitary place. When he lands on the other side of the lake and he sees a large crowd, it says he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. So Jesus takes a boat across a lake to go and get some space because he's grieving something awful and terrible. He goes, I just, this is, oof, not for me right now. No, got to get out of here. And by the time he gets to the other side of the lake, word has reached the towns around there and the people from that side of the lake have all gathered and he, he shows up and there's a crowd, not to console him. No one's bringing him a casserole from the meal train. They're not here for him. They bring their needs. Moms and dads, you ever get home after a long, stressful day? You barely make it inside and then everyone needs you? That's a feeling, isn't it? 
That's like, that's like um, there should be a, like a graduation ceremony. The first time you feel that, it's going to keep happening. But the, the first time you feel that, where you're like, had a day, got to get home, finally made it, I'm back to my safe place, and you open the door, and it's like, hey, the toilet's not flushing right, and what time is dinner? And you're like, whew, I'm going to walk back the other way, you know, get back in the car, sit in the garage for a little bit, I gotta, let's try this again. But, but it's real. You bring needs home, and there are needs waiting for you there. Jesus' response to this, as he goes to the other side of the lake, he's grieving the loss of his friend, and, and everybody shows up with their needs. His response is not my response. My response is not, guys, I'm so glad I'm here to serve you just in time. Jesus' response is more like that, though. It says he has compassion upon the people. The root word in the Bible, when you see compassion, I always say you need to see pity. That's the root. He has pity upon a people like I have pity upon a toddler who can't help themselves. The toddler's reaching for something on the shelf, and I have pity, and I go, I'll help you with that. You can't do this. Jesus has pity upon the people. He has compassion in his heart upon the people, and he chooses in that moment to deal with them right where they are. And says he sees to their needs. He healed their sick. It's admirable, but it doesn't feel replicable for us. We see that and we go, I don't know exactly how that's supposed to work in my life. Because this is one of those places where maybe this is the fully God, man, Jesus thing kicking in, because I don't think I could pull that off. We always say everyone is in a battle. We say that a lot around here. Everyone's in a battle. You are in a battle. Big or small, public or private, everybody is going through something right now. You have needs. That's okay to say too. You have needs. Not just today, you always have needs. That's why I think this series is so important. This idea of holy hospitality for me is so important because that's not changing for us. You and I are not going to have fewer needs. We're going to have different needs. Hospitality is not how to fold the napkins for the dinner party. That's not what this is. Holy hospitality is about, like Robert said to start the series, it's about interruptible love. What is our life like if our life isn't about being interruptible at every turn with the love of Jesus? This is about making room at your dinner table, but more than that, making room in your heart for the burdens of another. Which is another way of me saying, uh, I think we need to learn how to sacrifice for others. We, we always need to be better at that. And even the best in the room among us still needs to be better at that. I would say this way too, it's, it's fair to say everyone in the room is the main character in their own story. You are the main character of your story. It's okay that that's true. Uh, we do a lot of like, hey, this is not about you. I say that a lot. It's not about you. Your life is about you, okay? It's, who else is it going to be about? You are the main character. So don't apologize for having needs. Don't apologize for being the main character. Whose else's life are you going to live but yours? But, and this is kind of the point today, but having needs is not an excuse to look past the needs of others. Having needs is not an excuse to look past the needs of others. Growing up and becoming mature as a Christ follower, we grow into the idea, we grow into the concept, we grow into the ability to be able to see to someone else's needs while we deal with our own. 
Like children don't know how to take care of their own needs and someone else's. This is what makes uh, a child a child. The toddler reaching for the shelf is not concerned with how you're feeling right now. They just want the thing on the shelf. Entirely self-focused, and that's normal. That's how it should be. At a certain age, human beings are entirely self-focused. It's the total capacity they have. And then as tweens and teens, they start doing other things, don't they? They start taking on tasks and they start growing into, into a new level of life. And, and so maybe you start babysitting or maybe you start, the kids start mowing the lawn or different things start happening. And all of a sudden you see this, this light turn on in children where children go from being entirely self-focused because who else are they going to focus on to recognizing that there are needs other than their own and they may even be able to see to some of them. Like little training bursts. Then one day a baby shows up and a young adult is as ready as they're ever going to be to take care of this new life. I think it's a lot of fun to watch new parents. I mean, it's always fun to watch someone struggle with something you struggled with now that you don't have to struggle anymore. That's always, you know, that's like, <laughs> you know, you just kind of laugh at people. I don't mean it like that. I mean, that is fun too, um, if we're being honest. But it's fun to watch the light bulbs come on for new parents when, like, let's be honest, mainly new moms, new dads were a little slow on the uptick there. They were like six or seven. We're like, you know what? I think I get this diaper thing. Like, too late. Um, be better, dads. Oh, that's going to be a theme this year. Be better. Um, but when it comes to, like, like, when you see a new mom who's in charge of most of the feeding and they're doing all the schedule and they're, they're in and out, and, and when you hear the mom go, I realized today that while the baby naps, that's when I shower, that's when I nap, or just those kind of those schedules start aligning and you realize that, that mom has, like, reached a new level, that I can see to the child's needs and my needs simultaneously somehow, and that's, that's sort of like wizardry when I look at it. I'm like, I don't know how moms do this, but moms do it. And we should, Mother's Day is a ways away, but let's remember this story then and pretend I told it that day because it's, it's something. You guys are doing something. One day you're closing a deal, ironing a shirt, cooking dinner, and virtually attending the PTO meeting all at once. And you don't know how you got there. And the reality is you got there because one day you had a baby and then slowly but surely you stumbled through and figured out how to do 12 things at once. And all of a sudden you're doing 12 things at once and other people in the world are marveling at you. Young moms are marveling at the experienced moms going, how do you possibly do all this? And the experienced mom is like, do all of what? Do you know all the things I'm not getting done right now? Right? Is this constant? Because we're always growing up. We're always leveling up. We're always maturing our way in life, but in faith as well. You grow into it. That's how you do anything. You grow into it. You get better at it. You learn how to do two things at once, in a sense. You learn how to take care of one person's needs and another person's needs and your own needs. So I want to remind you that you're growing into your Christ-like hospitality every day. You're maturing into that every day, but it requires you work at it. It requires you try. It requires you're aware that you're actually trying to grow into this, but it's real. Like Jesus encounters this large crowd and it says he heals their sick, which is important to me that we acknowledge. He didn't take a couple as examples and be like, oh, this crowd will let me show them what I can do. He's not there to perform. He doesn't go, you, you, and you, you have some interesting issues, come. Heal them, send them back and go, see, I'm Jesus. It says he heals their sick. There's a totality implied in that. I got you all. Jesus wasn't there to perform for him. Jesus was there to be there for them. 
Holy hospitality is learning to receive others right where they are, no matter where you are. And this is hard for us because we all have needs. And my needs might be spiking today, and yet someone else has needs, and I'm going to leave that for another day. This is hard because we're better at self-pity than we are at self-denial. We're better at self-pity than we are at self-denial. The Bible, Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. That's what he says. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And most of us get stuck on deny myself because that, that seems like a lot. That seems hard. I don't know how to do that. Men, here's a preview. We're going to be talking about this uh, verse all year. We're going to have some, some breakfast meetings that we're going to hang out. We're going to have a retreat. And it's going to be about deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. So if you want to know more about that, men, um, be looking for that. Why? Because we're not good at self-denial. We're really good at self-pity. We're not good at self-denial. Guys, deny yourself. And you go, oh, following Jesus is so hard. Expect so much of me. That's called self-pity. I'm good at self-pity. I just want to let you know. Um, this is not me throwing stones. I'm, if we have a self-pity party, I will be the host. <laughs> I can teach you all about how to do it. I'm really good at it. If you, um, I don't really want to make you look at my wife during this next couple minutes, but if you do, she's going to be nodding and smiling that I'm finally acknowledging in public that I'm really good at self-pity. I'm so sorry. It's hard to do this in front of a lot of people. Don't you feel bad for me? <laughs> it's one of my fa- fatal flaws. It is one of the things I struggle most with is self-pity. I'm great at it. Like, I'm an all-star at self-pity. And I do it quietly, and I do it really under the surface, and no one really knows. She knows. She's, I mean, I save it for her. And, and what I really want in those moments, I just want someone to feel bad for me or hear how hard my life is. You know, poor guy. Self-pity, now that I've outed myself, probably none of you have the same issue. Self-pity is just pride in disguise. Okay. Self-pity is pride in disguise. It is me, or maybe you, but it's me wanting to be central to my emotional universe. It's me wanting the universe to revolve around me. And so when something is hard, I'd like for you to recognize how hard it is for me. Not this is hard, not how can I serve you in the hard thing, but do you see how hard this is for me? Everything kind of revolves back to me, and self-pity is just pride in disguise. It's just one more way to say, isn't that interesting about me, though, again? And I'll tell you this because I'm going to then be honest with another thing. Let me confess. I had kind of an exhausting year last year. Not self-pity, just facts, okay? We had some health stuff in our family. We had some staff turnover that was like good staff turnover, but it's hard to like onboard new people and it's extra work and it's fine. Ministry growth is a great thing, but also a lot of work. Tried to take some time away. I have these kind of breaks built into my year to take some time away so that I don't burn out. And, and this last year didn't go so well. I had to pull out of a May retreat in Colorado that I do every year because the, the date conflicted with my youngest birthday. And I was like, I'm not going to miss your birthday. I gave her the choice. Do you want me to miss your birthday? Predictably, she said, maybe not. And I said, cool, I'll skip it. So I didn't go. We had a, a thing planned in, in the summer in Syracuse. I was going to go spend a couple weeks there and kind of recharge while managing a child's dance camp or whatever. And that was like draining and depressing in all ty- types of ways. It was not fun. Um, Syracuse. Okay. Um, we have an October backpacking trip in, in the hills of Kentucky. That's this kind of out, throw your phone on the river and spend a few days in nature. That got canceled. That didn't happen. 
worked hard all year to get a group of 27 people to Israel, including my wife and my parents' trip of a lifetime. We would have gotten back last week, as you might have imagined, that didn't happen either. Israel part's a really helpful part. So these are all my, my trips that were built in to like, um, help me recharge. And the Israel's helpful because um, there's actual real terror and tragedy happening there. Like the fact that I didn't get to go backpacking is not a tragedy. But I still feel bad that I missed out. I still look at the Israel trip and I still go, oh, sorry. I really wanted to go with my parents to see my parents see it. I wanted to take my wife. Wouldn't it have been fun to take my wife? While true, it would have been fun. There's still something in me that wants to go, but don't you feel bad that I missed it? That's what children say. It's child's play. It's pure pride. That I have to recognize every time I'm feeling it, every time I'm saying it, every time. I don't have to say it out loud to think it and know it and start identifying, nope, self-pity there again. Oh, you didn't get to go on your fancy, bougie trip? People have it harder than you. People still need you. Life still goes on. Your children are still right here. You still have a ministry in front of you. You still have people who love you. You still have food on the table. Like, you can do the whole thing, and this isn't, this isn't buck up and be better, little boy. That isn't that. This is going, you are not the center of the universe. And I tell myself all the time, it's not about me. But life continues. And life keeps happening and life keeps coming and life doesn't wait. So Jesus hears about his friend and, and life doesn't stop. People don't stop. No one pauses and goes, God, well, you want like a week off here and just like a staycation and we'll just leave you alone and it'll be okay. No one says it. No one should be asking for it. And look, some of you have real actual needs and you're on the verge of burnout and you have emotional, like get help. Don't like deny, deny, deny. I don't have any issues. That's not it. Don't press it down into a ball and then have a big flame out later. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying for most of us, in the, in the biggest, widest spectrum of standard life experience, self-pity is way more common than self-denial, and we got to start to recognize it. Because at the end of the day, I'm still a middle-aged parent of teenagers. We still have the same health issues we had, or we still have to manage our finances, or still have to deal with the car trouble that's going to come down the road. We still have a job that is by nature a little bit emotionally taxing at times. We still are hanging with you guys in all the best places, in hospitals and living rooms, we're crying about uh, hard things and we're celebrating good things. We're still working through broken marriages and deep struggles. We're still working through big diagnoses and, and surgeries and whatever comes with that. So, so at the end of a year where I'm feeling a little bit wiped out and I look at the life that I still have in front of me where you're still going to have to host some people and your family still lives 1,400 miles away and they're all going to show up at once and you're still going to have to deal with that. And while you're going to hand out some meals, you know you're still kind of in charge of that. It doesn't matter because it's still coming. And here's where pride steps in. Those are all facts that are observable. The things that are still going to happen are observable facts in my life. And we have an enemy that wants to steal, kill, and destroy. We have an enemy that prowls around like a lion just waiting for us to present as this wounded baby deer. Oh, poor me. That's when he attacks. So we have an enemy that would like nothing more than for me to go on a pity party and a self-pity parade about how hard my life is and how I don't get any rest and go, guys, love that. Because the enemy wants to hijack my heart and turn it inwards. My life is not for me. My life is for her and then the two of them and then you guys. That's my life. Not because I'm a pastor. 
because I'm a follower of Jesus. Your life is for the people God has given you in your family and the people in your community so that you might bring glory to God by the way that you serve others. That's what your life is for. And if we forget that, when we get on the pity parade, what happens is we start to turn inward, the enemy hijacks it, and he says, yeah, life is about you. Let's talk more about you. And that's not what my life's about at all. Self-pity is just pride in disguise. Reminded me when I was thinking about this and the trip that I didn't go on this year, our annual trip to the Red River Gorge in the Daniel Boone National Forest of Kentucky. There's this spot where as you're driving into the spot where you park to get out and put your stuff on and start walking, there's a tunnel. This is an actual picture of the tunnel. It's beautiful. And it's not like, you know, a tunnel through the highway in Pennsylvania where it's eight lanes wide and it's real nice and lit inside. It looks like a couple guys with hammers got in there for a few weeks and chiseled the thing out. Depending on what car we're in, we have to pull the mirrors in so we don't scrape them on the bare rocky walls as we go through. And it's a one-way tunnel, so you can see all the way through it enough that you can see if someone else is coming from the other direction, and if so, you have to wait. It's a one-way tunnel. Water's dripping down on the inside. A little claustrophobic, to be honest. Be a great place to do like one of those sting operations where you come in from both ends and someone's stuck in the middle. I think of that every time and I feel a little bit uncomfortable. The thing about the tunnel is the traffic can only go one direction. And I would say that self-pity is an emotional one-way tunnel in your life. Okay? Children work this way. They're one-way tunnels, just my needs, my needs, my needs, my needs, my needs, my needs. We love children. But that's what it is until they're old enough to recognize that other people have needs. Self-pity eliminates your ability to love or even consider someone else in their moment of need because you're too busy. Self-pity is too busy coming down the tunnel. You can't get anything else through the other direction. And if you think about it as others' needs and my self-pity are trying to go through the tunnel at the same time, it doesn't work. It's a one-way tunnel. We get clogged up with pride, and then all of a sudden we're turned off and tuned out to what the people around us need. And it isn't even so much about what they need. It's about that God put you in a position in that moment for a reason, and your purpose for being on earth is to be his conduit to his love and grace for them in their needs, not to fix them, not to solve their problems, to be his love and grace for them, with them, there with them in the moment. And so when, when we live in a, in a self-pity world, what we essentially do is we create a one-way tunnel and it's all about me. In the book of Romans, it says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. We breeze by that one too. Your pride wants life to revolve around you and God is trying to teach you humility. My pride wants my life to be about me and God every day is chiseling on me be more humble. And if you won't find humility on your own, I will hu humiliate you, which is God's way of going, guess what? Now you have a new level of humiliation, which is a new level of humility. Guess what? You're more humble. Do you like to do it your way or my way? The heavy season you're in right now, the battle, the weariness, 
pride disguised as self-pity wants you to find importance in your struggle and identity in your victimhood. Wants to convince you that God is weighing you down. Christ-like humility sees it differently. Doesn't deny that you're in a struggle. Doesn't deny that you may be a victim. Christ-like humility sees it differently because life is not chiefly about you and then we recognize God has a bigger plan in place that we have to learn how to flip the script on life. And I would say it this way, the trials of life are not God's plan to weigh you down, but to grow you up. It's not God's way to weigh you down. It's his way to grow you up. The trial you're in, the challenge you're facing, the struggle you're going through, the the aches and the pains or the emotional heartbreak or the spiritual battle, these things are not God trying to bring you down. They're trying to grow you up. The same way you give a child a thing they're not quite ready to do when they don't do it perfectly, but they learn a little bit along the way, God is doing that for you and me. We are his children, and he's trying to raise us up into mature adults that are about the kingdom. He's training you to balance your needs with others. He's training you how to eat while the baby's napping. And he's teaching you humility along the way. And humility eliminates self-pity, begins to open that tunnel up where you can hear about the needs of others, where you can be others-focused with your life, to where you can deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. So you can offer compassion, which is rooted in pity for others, not for self. So you can practice love and grace even in difficult seasons. Holy hospitality is a pursuit of this type of growth. Growing and learning how to receive people the way that Jesus received people. And here's what we all know to be true. The more that you've been through, the deeper the well of compassion you have to help others who are going through that sort of thing. Some of you have been through some stuff that I wouldn't wish upon my worst enemy. And when other people in our church go through it, they come to you and you walk them through it. Some of you, when you're going through it, I have to hold myself back and say, God's going to use this later. Five years from now, you're going to be helping somebody else who's going through the same trial. I can't say it in the moment because it doesn't feel right in the moment, right? Nobody wants to hear that when you're experiencing heartbreaks. Be like, this is awful, but it's going to be so cool. No, don't do that. But if you watch, it's exactly what happens. People who've gone through serious things are often the best ones at helping people going through the same serious thing. God wants to use your grief to bless someone else who's grieving. God wants to use your trial to walk through a similar trial with another. Your health stuff or your marriage struggle, your kid challenges, your sin history, God is growing you up with the skills you need in your life to do his will in the lives of others. And so holy hospitality, when it's all grown up, when it's all mature, when it's all done, is about having the ability to receive the people right where they are, no matter where you are. When it's all grown up, holy hospitality is about making outsiders insiders. It's about finding room at the table for one more person. It's about knowing that you are identified not by your struggles, but by your victory in Jesus. It's about recognizing that today is the only day I have to share that victory. That I can wait for tomorrow. I can push it off until I feel better. I can, I can just, maybe the conditions will be better and I can, I can start that out tomorrow, but I don't know if I can get there today. Holy hospitality in its fullest maturity says today is the day that I've been given and today is the day that I'm gonna lean in on this. Because someone somewhere is waiting on it because God has put you in a position where they might be waiting on you 
to be the conduit of his love and his mercy and his grace and his goodness. Because what they're going through, you know exactly the path. And the question is, when the needs come, when you're dealing with your own needs, when you're weighed down with your own burdens, with your weary, with your own life, and when the needs show up around you, when God nudges you and goes, hey, there's one. Hey, she could use you. Hey, just a word for him. The question for all of us is how will we respond? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for receiving us. God, I pray that we can find the humility to to remember where we were when you found us, where we were when you uh, accepted us and loved us. God, some of us were in pretty dark places, deep ditches, and your grace met us there. Through your son, you met us in the low places. You found us in the valley. You walked us through it. God, I pray that our own story would be brought back up today, that each of us would have to consider um, who you are and who you have been for us. To remind us that ultimately this is a story that revolves around you and your grace and your goodness and that we are here to worship you because you were there when we needed you. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice that makes any of this possible. We thank you for the beauty of your plan that's grabbed us out of the deepest places. God, motivate us and challenge us and convict us. Nudge us on with parental love that we might grow in maturity to be a little bit more like Jesus as we love the world around us. God, thank you for your presence here this morning. Lift up these prayers in the name of Jesus. Amen.